Hello and welcome to the Kick in the Creatives podcast, hosted by myself, Sandra Busby, and my fellow creative, Tara Roskell, offering you interviews, inspiration, motivation, and a gentle prod in the right direction. And for lots more information, challenges, and other useful tools to help you get creating, you can go to www.kickinthecreatives.com. And of course, this is where you can also find today's show notes. Enjoy the show. Today's guest is Kevin Murphy. Kevin is an internationally recognised, award-winning portrait painter and illustrator. Kevin created nearly 250 commercial illustrations for major entities such as the Rolling Stones, National Geographic, LucasArts and Barnes & Noble. Kevin is now the co-founder of Evolve. Evolve is a platform that can teach anyone how to paint in a realism style in a year or less. You can check out the free painting masterclass webinar that Kevin mentions in the podcast by going to kickinthecreatives.com forward slash evolve webinar. We hope you enjoy the show. You started painting, didn't you, when you were around 10? So I'd love to know how you got from the 10-year-old Kevin who loved to paint to deciding that you wanted to be a professional artist and what steps you took to get there. Well, um, I would start by saying, you know, at 10 years old, I grew up in the Bronx and it wasn't a, it wasn't a very safe area. And my parents insisted that, um, that I do something. I couldn't sit around and and, you know, because sitting around gets you in trouble. Mm. So, you know, I did things like baseball and football, but I really wasn't a fan. And so I enjoyed art. I wasn't a serious artist. I enjoyed it. Um, I was kind of mediocre at it, but I enjoyed it. Um, I had a few friends that were actually quite a bit better than me. And, um, and so my parents decided they would put me into an art class uh, on Saturday mornings. And I did that, a little bit of painting. And, um, and, and so, you know, it was really, it was an interest of mine. It was a place that I went just to be left alone and kind of be with my own thoughts. And, um, but it was never really that big a thing in my life. Um, it was just one, one thing that I did. And so, um, I would say there was, there was something that happened that when I was around 11 years old, while I was in that class, um, that inspired me, my father, my father drove a taxi. And somebody left a magazine in the car, and there was an interview with um, world-renowned illustrator Boris Vallejo, and that's um, B-O-R-I-S-V-A-L-L-E-J-O. Anybody who doesn't know him, you should look him up. Um, Just an incredible artist. And I saw a painting that he had done. There were a few of them in the magazine, but one of the paintings called Wilderness um, really caught my attention. And... um, I just fell in love with it. And so there I am with my acrylic paint and my one inch brushes trying to replicate artwork done by a world renowned professional illustrator. Well, I didn't know I had no perspective. And so, yeah, I mean, it's pretty funny, but of course, you know, you, you know, with a one inch brush and acrylic paint, there's only so far you're going to go. And so eventually I gave up on that because I, I just, there was no, there was no path to getting there. And so I, I eventually I gave up on painting. I really just got sidetracked with other things. And then um, when I turned 18, I, I graduated high school and I came across, I, I, what happened is I was, I was working construction in the city and, um, and on my way down to, the, to work, I started reading um, science fiction and fantasy books. And one of the books that was given to me had that painting, Wilderness by Boris. Um, and at that point, I like I just started to fall in love with not just the genre, but the artwork that was on the covers. And so I started painting again. And again, just a little bit at a time. I didn't know anything, but I started painting again. And so for the three years that I worked construction, I painted on my weekends a little here and there. And I was trying to trying to get better. And then one day I went into construction. I went into work in the morning. And I just packed up all my tools. I had decided on the train ride to work at 530 in the morning that I was done. I packed up all my tools, gave them to one of the apprentices that was there, and I um, decided I was going to be a professional painter. I was going to do book covers, and I've never looked back. So how did you actually go and find the right guidance that really changed everything for you and you know, got you started? Yeah, well, so the first thing I did was I, I reached out to Boris. I tracked him down. I f- 
he lived in New Jersey, which was only about an hour and a half from where I lived. I tracked him down. Um, today they call that stalking, but back then I, <laughs> I was doing my due diligence. Um, but I found him and I dropped off a portfolio actually at the gym that he worked out at. Oh my God, uh, that really is stalking. Yeah, yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> you know, when you, when you want something badly enough, yeah. right, I had no way to access the guy. And so I read in an article that he worked out at a gym in New Jersey. So I, back then there was no internet, so it was yellow pages. I was calling the operators in all these different towns, getting the phone numbers of all the gyms and then calling the gyms. And eventually I tracked him down. I found the gym. Um, and so I, I, and I, I tried not to be rude. I went when he wasn't there. Like I found out that he worked in the evenings. So I went in the morning and dropped off a portfolio via letter with the portfolio, apologized for the interruption in his, in his day. Um, and, uh, and just asked him for some advice. He was nice enough. I still have the letter, um, uh, here somewhere. I'm not, I don't have it with me at the moment, but, but basically what he said to me was, um, you know, if you're interested in, in art as a hobby, that's great. Good for you. Keep just keep doing what you're doing. And if you're interested in doing something more with it, then you need to go get some training because you're, what you're doing is not going to get you, it's not going to get you down the road. Um, you know, and so basically what he told me was that if, if you're happy doing just what you're doing and don't care about ever getting better or making the job easier for yourself or any of that, well, that's fine. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if you want to be better, even if it's not for career, if you want to just be better for yourself, you need to go get an education. You're not, you can't do it by yourself. You can't do it alone. And, um, and he mentioned in the letter that his son, Dorian, went to the School of Visual Arts. So I figured if the school was good enough for his son, it would be good enough for me. Mm. I signed up. I got into the school. And um, it was probably for what I pay. I don't remember what the cost of the tuition was, um, but it was expensive. It's more, it, was the, it was the top illustration school in the country at the time. And, um, and so I think actually ranked number one in the world at the time for illustration. So you would think it's going to be an incredible program. Mm. I got in, and my first semester, what I what I learned for the money that I spent to be there was that there was no education to be had there. Which was awful. You can imagine your. I don't even. Again, I don't remember how much the school was. It's nothing like the cost of today. Today, the what they what they charge for an education is is beyond. I mean, there's just no way to justify it. No. But even back then, it was still pricey. Mm. But um. But I, but I think it was like, I think it ran me like $10,000 for the, for the year. Wow. Something like that. Wow. Maybe per semester. I don't know. But, but it was, it was a very, very expensive lesson to get in there and learn that there was no education to be had there for me at least. And I think that's the case. Most people who go to these art schools fail. They don't, they don't get out of the school with any marketable skills. Yeah. So, um, and then, and they're led to believe that it's their fault. It's not the fault of the school. It's the students don't try hard enough. They didn't get lucky, or which is nonsense. It's all nonsense. Anybody who wants to be a pro, if you're willing to do the work, can be a pro. Anybody. Um, so, and I'm so, that. so how did you actually learn in the end? Well, I tracked down. I went to visual arts for one semester, and like I said, what a waste of time. I mean, terrible. So the stories that I have, I won't go into them. I, I, you know, I told you I love tangents. I won't go into the stories, but I can tell you that I had an experience with, with um, my painting and my drawing teacher that would scare anybody away from going to a college. Well, first of all, my painting teacher didn't know he, he was an abstract painter. So what could he possibly teach me if I wanted to do realistic work? Or for that matter, how was he going to teach me real color theory? Here is a clown who threw paint at a canvas and some guy with money decided that he was worth backing at some point in the seventies. And now, so he's a, he's a, he's a successful artist with artwork and museums, but he's a total hack, nice guy, but he's a total hack. He had no information to share. His idea of teaching us how to paint was there's something, go paint that. And then he'd walk around and shake his head. Yes or no at you, but he didn't know what he was doing. I asked him straight to his face. I said, I, I need to, I'm asking, uh, what I asked him was, what colors would I mix for a basic Caucasian skin tone? Like, could you give me a starting point? And he said, you'll learn that in your third year. 
Oh, my God. Yeah. I'm 20 years of 21 years old at the time, and I'm not a child. I've been working in a real job in the real world with adults. I was accustomed to not being treated that way. And so I said to him, well, for what I'm paying to be here, it would be nice if you simply gave me the information. And if I can't use it, well, that's on me. But if you give me the information, maybe I can use it. And he just brushed me off. In your third year. Now, to me, if I were him and I couldn't teach that, if I didn't have that information, which that's what it came down to, he didn't know. I would have said, you know what? I don't know that because I don't do figure work. I don't paint people. But I can go and speak to one of the teachers who does and get some information for you, or I can put you in touch with one of those teachers. Right? How hard would that be for the salary he was collecting? Yeah. And, and so, like, that was my experience almost across the board there. Sounds very, and very similar to mine. <laughs> almost everybody I know who's gone to art school has had that, has faced that. And a lot of them, what they do is they, they argue for their own deficiencies. Like, you know, you spend, like nowadays, you spend $240,000 to get an education at Pratt in New York City, and you walk out of there dumber than you were when you showed up. They've spun you around in circles and fed you with all kinds of nonsense, and you walk out of there, and what do you do? You're going to admit that you just got robbed of a quarter of a million dollars? That, that the money that you just spent to get an education will actually be the hindrance that makes it impossible to actually build a career? Because you now have to pay back a, a, what is an, a, ma- a massive mortgage just to get by every month. And, and you're going to be doing that for the next 30 years to pay off your college debt. How are you supposed to be able to make any decent um, decisions about how to build a career when you're worrying about paying that kind of a bill. And it, the bill gets in the way, the college tuition gets in the way of being able to forge a career. So at what point then did you did you think, okay, this is just not happening for me. I, I need to try a different avenue. Oh, within a few weeks. Really? That, that quickly? <laughs> I, I yeah, yeah it, was, it was ugly. Yeah. And, um, and so after the end of the first semester, I got out of there. And I, um, I tracked down Dorian, Boris's son, and I asked him if I could come out and watch him work. Now, there's a lot more to the story, but, but I basically, he was kind enough to let me come out. I, I stayed at his house one day and I worked. He helped me do a photo shoot, helped me with uh, the beginning of a first painting, which dramatically altered what I was doing. Like just walking into his home and seeing some of the originals dramatically altered my perspective. And I would say, you know, there's, there's a couple of things that go into producing incredible art. Um, and this, this is kind of a fun test that I give my students in the school. Um, I'll have students who I know understand how to paint because I've taught them and I know they understand, but they still don't produce incredible work. And then I have another student sitting next to them who knows the same amount of stuff and is producing professional level work and is 16 years old. Or for that matter, 14 years old. What's the difference? Well, it's attitude. So with the student who's, who is not successful with the, with the knowledge, they have the knowledge, but they're not delivering those professional, those, that artistic excellence, I'll pose a question to them. Like, imagine if this painting, like I, as the teacher, I know what you can do with this. I know your potential because I, you've been my student for a number of years now. I know what you're capable of. How about we do this? You're going to start this painting over, and every time that you do something, and you accept less than you're capable of, I'm going to burn you with a hot poker, right? That sounds crazy, right? No, but, but stay with me because this, this, is, this is important. I then asked the student, do you think you would produce a better painting with the threat of that? And the student, of course, says, yeah, well, if you're going to burn me every time. Well, that's the difference between those who succeed and those who fail. Not the fear of being burned, but an unwillingness to leave something as just good enough when you know you can do better, right? And so the, the fear of being burned with a poker, you will be very careful about your color mixtures to make sure they're right. You'll be very careful about where you put the paint and how you blend the edges and all of those things, right? But if we took away the threat, why should you care less about the quality of what you produce, right? So the attitude is different. When I, I went from knowing nothing to being a professional painter in about 18 months, and I'm not talking about like, you know, my mother's friends were buying paintings. I'm talking about top five publishing companies in New York City buying my work consistently. And this is all on his guidance? Yeah, not, yes and no. 
so basically when I went to when I went to um when I went to his house, I saw what originals looked like. I had never seen an illustration before. I had no idea just how high the quality was. So immediately the bar was raised for me. I had this idea that the paintings, you know, they're done and they're, you know, they're, you know, 36 inches by 48 inches. Mm. And, and then you photograph them and you scale them down for the book cover. And because you scale them down, they tighten up a little bit. But the truth is the original paintings are like, in, like exponentially better than the printed version. And until I saw the originals and realized just how far I had to go to get to where I wanted to be, I really just didn't have a perspective on it. I didn't know what was possible. And so when I saw what he had, that changed my thinking. I, the bar moved. I knew what I needed to, to achieve in order to be a pro. And then from there, what he showed me, first of all, he gave me a comprehensive palette because the colors you use matter. If you don't have a comprehensive palette, there are going to be areas, there are going to be blind spots, areas, colors you can't mix, you can't create, shifts in temperatures that, that won't exist in your paintings that are what bring the painting to life. And so if you don't have the right tools, then you're not going to be able to do the work. The same thing with a brush. If you're using a bristle brush, you're not going to be able to get the same kind of a surface that a, that a, a sable brush is going to give you. And if you don't know the difference, well, you're kind of in the dark. You're, you're going to struggle. And the thing is, you might be doing everything right. And the tool stands between you and the finished product. You know, it's a very big thing. Like in, with the Evolve program, we use old Holland paint. And I'm very particular about that. It's the finest paint in the world. I always frame it this way. Old Holland, for those people who don't know what Old Holland is, Old Holland celebrated its 103rd birthday the year that Napoleon was born. Wow. <laughs> Since then, okay? Mm. It tells you everything you need to know about the quality of their product. Yeah. They're the oldest paint company in the world by like 200 years. So we use their paint. And what that does is that eliminates, that eliminates the paint being a problem in the process. Students are always told, well, don't spend a lot of money on your materials, but that's backwards thinking. The better the material, the easier it is to eliminate the material as the problem in your work. Lower grade material opens up the door to the paint or the brushes or the substrate, the canvas being the problem. You could do everything right and still fail because the materials get in your way. You wouldn't, you wouldn't try to race against a Ferrari you know, in a, in a Mazda, you know, or in a, or in a Honda, because you're going to get destroyed. The tool simply will not, it won't handle the job. And so if you're going to run a race against a Ferrari, you need a Ferrari or you need a Lamborghini to be able to compete, to be able to deliver in that space. So quality materials, and that's not to say to go out and just buy expensive stuff. You have to know what you're buying. And that requires somebody to kind of guide you with that. And that's what I take it um, Boris was using, was it? No, no. Actually, um, most illustrators don't spend their money on paint of that quality. Look, once you know what you're doing, you could work the cheapest paint in the world because you can manipulate it and you can manage it. And you'll know where, where the, where you're, you know, you'll know your skills are, mad, are doing what they're supposed to do. And if the paint is a problem, you find the issue with the paint and fix it, right? When you're learning, though, you wouldn't know if it was you or the tools. So when true. you're learning, it's critical to have the right material. Well, I do want to come back to materials, actually, a bit later on, but I kind of want to circle back a bit to where you were, you know, obviously you'd gone from your 10-year-old boy painting to um, college and hated that, and then you decided, you know, you were going to get some guidance, and you obviously got amazing guidance, and yeah. that changed everything for you. But eventually you were asked, and I'm really, I was so surprised, not surprised, but, you know, if, if this was me, I think I'd have fallen over, um, to be asked to do a cover for the Rolling Stones album. Was it Bridges to Babylon, if I've done my research yeah. right? I mean, that must have been a pretty big moment for you. How did that feel to, to reach that point where somebody like that was looking at your work thinking, wow, that needs to be on my album cover? You know what, it's funny, you can't see me. But I am smiling very broadly because I'm gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna shatter what you're probably thinking was going on. I got a call in the morning. It was about nine o'clock in the morning, and um, uh, Stefan Sagmeister, um, who is a world-renowned um, designer based out of uh, Manhattan, New York City, 
and um, he's such a strong designer that he's he's well branded. Um, he in the in the uh, in the graphic design industry, he's a giant. But anyway, I had done a few jobs with him, and he called me in the morning, and he he said that he had the Rolling Stones cover, um, uh, upcoming Rolling Stones cover, and asked me if I was interested in it. He that he wanted to work with me on this thing. And I said, no, thank you. No. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I, he told me that it was nine days till it had to be delivered. It was a very, very short window. And I actually was on my way out of town. I was on my way out of town. I was going down to Atlanta for, for a week. And I thought about it and I said, nah, you know what? I'm, I wasn't, I wasn't a real fan of the Rolling Stones. I have friends who were big fans, but I really wasn't a big fan. And, um, I passed on it. I turned it down. I mean, who, who does that? <laughs> only me. I'm, 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 the, I'm the only person dumb enough to do something. <laughs> well, I was, I, I just, I, it. I'd have really given up my children to do that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, well, let me tell you, I hung up the phone. He was like, well, um, okay. And he, we got off the phone. I made some breakfast. I'm eating breakfast and I stop and I think to myself, well, that's got to be the dumbest thing you've ever done. I called him back and I said, I said, Hey, I, I, I'm sure the job's already gone. I just figured I'd give you a call back and check. And he says to me, he goes, I was going to give you a call back at noon just to make sure. (laughs) (laughs) So that's how I got the job. And, and so basically, you know, but, but yeah, I actually turned it down because I was on my way out of town. I wound up doing the painting at a convention down in Georgia. Uh, a, there's a giant science fiction convention called Dragon Con, and I was I was there as a guest that year, and I um, I wound up actually doing the painting at the sh- at the you know at the show. I was out in public working on the painting. Wow. And understand that painting, I wasn't supposed to be doing that. I didn't know it because I hadn't seen the contract. The contract came into my agent, and I was on a plane all, already on my way down to Georgia. So I just did the painting out in public. So people were walking around. There's like 50,000 people at that convention, walking around, people coming by and checking out the painting. You know, I'm talking about what it is. I don't think anything of it. And, uh, and when I get back and I see the contract that I've got to keep everything a secret, and <laughs> I'm like, okay, um, we're just going to, you know, just kind of quietly sign the contract and submit the painting, you know. But um, yeah, so that painting was actually done in public. Wow. The whole painting, yeah. I thought that'd be great PR, really. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, they like the thing to be seen for the first time. You know, right. fortunately back then, people weren't walking around with cell phones with phone, with cameras. Otherwise, it would have been all over the phone. Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so, you know, fortunately, people got to see it with their own eyes, and that was it. And now, yeah. now you must look back and realize just how, you know, what a big thing that was even if you didn't see it then absolutely i you know what the thing is i understood i understood what it was at the time but um i had other jobs coming to me that were not quite at that level but i originally prior to the rolling stones i was i was uh supposed to do the aerosmith uh nine lives cd and it's just that it took so long to get everything approved it was nine paintings there was no way for me to get them done in the window of time that they had Right after that project kind of fell through on my end, the Rolling Stones piece came in. And so Stefan immediately reached out to me on it. So, so it wasn't like, there were, like I was only doing like magazine covers and all of a sudden the Rolling Stones popped up. I mean, I was doing work with, with LucasArts, Star Wars, Jurassic Park. I was offered the Nine Lives CD. I mean, I had like very, you know, some real hardcore projects rolling in and, um, but again, like I said, like, you know, if the Rolling Stones thing, if I didn't take it, that would have been something not not on that level. But um, like I said, if I were a fan of the Rolling Stones, I would have been just, you know, doing backflips. Yes. So, um, though I have to say, we went to the concert and they converted me. They converted me. They put on an incredible show. I was I was very impressed with the with the show that they put on. So just want to ask you what you think about the idea there's this common assumption that an artist has a gift and they're born with this talent now do you believe that or do you think anybody can learn uh, i believe that anybody can learn um i i would i would make the assertion that i don't have any talent if whatever that word means um i work very hard you know like you you would never say um 
you know, you would never say that a, that a neurosurgeon is talented. It, in a lot of ways, it, it diminishes the work that they've done to get to the level of skill that they have. Right. You would you think about the the number of hours that they clock in a classroom and then in, you know, in, you know, working on cadavers and all the other work that they do to get that skill set. And talent kind of brushes that away like, well, you're born with that. Well, I would argue that no artist is. Michelangelo had three teachers. Now, he worked tirelessly. And he, he was as good as he was because he was relentless in his pursuit of perfection. He, he did not ever settle for less, less than the, the furthest boundary of his skill. And as long as you do that, that furthest boundary of your skill constantly improves. And I think like I would make the same argument for myself. I wanted this so badly, there was no amount of work that would deter me from achieving it. I, when I first started doing illustration, I was clocking 15 to 17 hours a day in front of an easel. Wow. I worked and I would go to sleep. I didn't have an alarm clock. I'd go to sleep when I was done working. I would wake up whenever I was rested and go straight back to work. And I did that for years. That is dedication, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is like, you know, it's funny. I talk about this a lot. That is not a path to take. That is a terrible, terrible way to develop your skills. I didn't know any better and I didn't have access to what I needed in order to grow. And in truth, I, I didn't really know. I was able to do things, but I didn't know how I was able to do them. I couldn't explain them. And it wasn't until I opened up the school and I had to try to explain it to people that I realized how clueless I was. Well, I was going to ask you, what made you decide to start your, your own school, your own physical art school, first of all? There were a couple of things that came together. One is I, I always knew that I would open up a school. And I knew this because there was no way for me to get access to what I wanted so badly to learn, um, there was just no access to it. And I know so many people who have gone down this road. They want to be artists. They want to be artists. They, they're willing to do the work, but there's, there's no place to get the knowledge. And I promised myself that once I figured it all out, I was going to share it with as many people as I could. Because I, I, look, look, I can tell you that like, I, grew up, I grew up dirt poor in a, in a very violent neighborhood in the Bronx. And art has given me access to a world I didn't even know existed. It's made it possible for me to give my, my children a life that I didn't even, I, I could never even dreamed. And, um, and, you know, art did that for me. And the idea of being able to share it, you know, being, being a professional artist was, was a dream fulfilled. And if you, like, I was actually talking to um, one of the Evolve students the other day. He's, he's actually looking, he's going to be opening up a brick and mortar school, um, an, an art academy like the one I have in New Jersey. And we were talking and one of the things he kind of came around and he was like, um, you know, I, what I'm doing here is I'm, I'm granting wishes. I'm making dreams come true for people by offering this information, freely offering it, you know, without holding back. I'm not worried about creating competition. I'm trying to share what I've learned, what, what's enriched my life. I mean, the, the art world has been so good to me. It would be it would be selfish to not share it, to not give other people access to what I figured out. And, and so for me, sharing it is so important. I mean, it's really it's such an important thing because, look, I can't make a great artist out of somebody. They've got to make the commitment to the work. However, I can give them the tools that they need to make any dream they have come true as long as they're willing to do the work. And it's not hard work. It's just a commitment. It's a commitment to do the best you can every time you sit down. And if you do that, I can get you wherever you want to be. So how did you go from teaching in person to co-found and evolve? And how does it differ from other art schools? Well, uh, um, well let's take just the first part of it. So I had, I had the Art Academy for 10 years. And Mitch had done a podcast. Mitch over at Pencil Kings had done a podcast with a friend of mine, actually Dorian, the guy who, who I went, uh, went to his house. Um, 10 years, uh, well, actually, no, this is 30 years earlier, 20 years earlier. Anyway, so um, so Mitch had done a podcast with him, and Mitch would always ask these the pros that he spoke to, like, you know, 
could they recommend somebody else that he might speak to? Um, and he's always looking for things for education because Mitch, very much like me, was looking to find ways. He didn't have access to real art pro- programming where he grew up. And he built a career as an animator on his own. And so he wanted to make it possible for people who didn't have access where they were to get access through the internet to meaningful education and, and to be able to do it at a, at a price that didn't bankrupt them. And so, um, so Dorian said, hey, well, you know, I've got a friend, Kevin, he's got a school. They do some pretty good stuff. You might want to talk to him. So Mitch got into And so Dorian connected us. And so I started having a conversation with Mitch and, you know, and I said, I don't know if what I have, if what I'm doing here would really be of any interest to you. I mean, you're welcome. Have you gone out and taken a look at what we do? And he said, no. So I gave him my website. I gave him my website information. He, he goes out there. I hear him click, 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 click on his keyboard and he gets quiet. And I'm like, um, you still there? Cause he's up in Canada. I'm in the U S I'm the connection. I'm not sure if he's even there anymore. And he's like, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm looking at your website. I see it. I see a drawing here by a 14 year old. Is this for real? And I said, yeah. I said, that's for real. He said, it looks like a photograph. And I said, yeah, it looks, yeah, it's a charcoal drawing done by hand. And he's like, there's another one here, 16 year old. It's a shark. And I'm like, uh, or whatever, 15 years old. And I'm like, yeah, that's a charcoal drawing. He then goes and he's like kind of walking through the website with the images, the student images. And finally he's, he's like, how much do you help these kids? Like, how much do you actually touch their work? And I told him that at the school, I have a policy. I never touch my students' work, ever. Everything that they do, they sink or swim on their own. I will talk to them and I'll guide them, but I never touch their work. I think that's very important. Um, They need to be proud of their successes and know that their successes are theirs. And they also have to own their failures, right? And so so he was like, yeah, I'm definitely interested in the... uh, Definitely interested in doing the in the in the uh, the podcast. So we did a podcast, and at the end of the podcast, he after we finished, uh, in fact, in the podcast, he says like I never do this, but for anybody listening, go check this school out. This is worth this is is worth traveling to, right? And which was which was you know pretty cool. Um, anyway, so he um, he then we we finished the podcast, and he asks me when I take students. And I told him, and he said, well, I'm looking at flights to come down there um, next week. Is that okay? So he flew down. And originally what he was looking to do was he was trying to flesh out a fundamental program for his, for Pencil Kings. And, um, you know, he was, he asked me basically if he could come down and kind of go through my program and kind of pick things out and maybe to help bolster up what he was building. And so he came down for a week and I was like, sure, absolutely. I share, I, sh- I freely share what I, what I know. Um, for me, it's, it's about getting this information to people who are looking for it. And so he came down, he was here for a week. And at the end of the week, he was like, Hey, look, you know what? I can't do what you're doing. I can't even come close. And you've already got it built. What do you say we partner up and, um, and, uh, we digitize your program, get your program out on the net. And so we had a conversation about that and we were able to work that out. It took a while to figure out, like I say, it took us almost a year to figure out how to do it. Because actually in the podcast, I say quite definitively that you cannot teach this through the internet. And um, yeah, I've been called on that a few times. (laughs) And what's your answer? (laughs) Well, what we've done is we've created an interface that allows or that forces constant interaction yeah. between the program and the students you like so we have we have what you would think of as homework assignments and every single assignment is checked by somebody on my end one of my one of the people who i've trained is checking your homework and they're going through it and they're letting you know what's good and what's bad where the things need to be worked on and so you're not alone is this like face to face it can be yeah yeah, yeah. It can, well, we said there are emails that you get right each every single it's, a, it's actually it's a it's a homework tool that we had built and so everything you do you take a picture with your phone and you send it in and then we come back and we we tell you everything that's good and everything that's bad things that need to be worked on we'll remind you of where the information is for the thing that you're that you're not doing well so you can go and watch the videos again to see how it's done um we also have office hours where the students are able to speak with the instructors face to face in a chat We've got homework rooms I and mean, we've got all of these, we've created, we've created an environment that is 
almost about the same as what we have in the school in New Jersey. People, we have homework rooms, chat rooms, where people will do their homework together. They're all over the world. We have this one group, they do midnight tea. There's about six or seven people from the US, every from the East Coast and the West Coast and even the middle of the country. And they do it from 11 at night until one in the morning. And they and we have four or five people. We've got one lady from Hong Kong. She jumps in, the, it's noon over there. We've got some, some people from Australia that jump in. And so we've got this international group sitting in this room two days a week in the middle of the night, hanging out, doing their homework together. So they've all become fast friends. And now we're talking about a couple of years later, they're all, they're like, they're all, like, they're all buddies. And they look forward to catching up. They do it every Tuesday and Thursday night. We have another group in Europe. They meet, I think it's every Thursday or Friday afternoon, Eastern Standard Time. Um, it's evening there, I guess. But, um, but we have these, these chat rooms that are the dedicated chat rooms where people, so when you're in the program, you're never alone. You're never sitting in your house by yourself trying to figure out what you're doing. If you're, there's always a community around you if you want there to be. So they're helping each other as well in that way, are they? Yes, yes. And we'll have people in the, in the chat room. So we have, our, like, I get on my phone. My phone chimes every time somebody goes into one of those chat rooms. So I know someone's in the room. I see two or three people jump in. Even if I'm in the middle of something, I'll stop what I'm doing. I'll jump in and see if everybody's doing okay, if anybody needs anything. If I see one person jump in and I don't see anybody else jump in, I'll jump in and join them just so that they're not alone. Now, I don't do it all the time because obviously I have other I have other commitments, but I do it when I can. Mitch does it also. Piper, who runs our homework team, does it also. We we have a bunch of people on the team that we all get we all get alerted anytime somebody goes into one of those homework rooms and we do our best to jump in. We also have people in the program, in Evolve, who have done really well, who are further down the road. And we allow them to be, you can say, spokespeople for our program. So they'll jump into the rooms as well. They organize a lot of the rooms. And so they're always there. So if you don't know something, you've got someone in the room who's, who's absolutely crushed the program. And they can be super helpful. If you don't know where something is, they can tell you where it is. It's not even about, well, I don't know about my homework. Like, I'm having trouble with this. But maybe, like, I was looking for information. I know that they have a video posted on how to sell art. And I couldn't find it. So somebody in the homework room will be able to tell them, oh, here's the link. I'll drop it there for you. And so we have a, we've built, we've worked very hard to build a real community. To get a time-sensitive discount to the Evolve Art Program, go to kickinthecreatives.com forward slash evolve. And, and what I love is the fact that um, we were talking about materials earlier and you actually supply all of the materials that's needed for the whole um, program don't you and and they yeah. are all really really good quality um high quality um old holland and not the student quality um types that you often find other academies sort of suggesting that you try to begin with and i agree with you i think you know you it's really good to use the best materials you can afford at least because you know it can be a quite um can have quite a bad effect on your art if you're using cheap materials but you you do supply all of those which is fantastic but i want to ask you a question because I, everything you do is um in oils isn't it for the program and yes. a, a lot of people are really afraid of using oils because you know they there's this um assumption that it's really complicated and people get confused by all of the mediums out there and the recipes because a lot of people make their own recipes for mediums and you know anyone who's who's new but really wants to to learn that can be quite overwhelming to to look on um say a website where they're selling oils and think okay well what about all these mediums what are they what do they do so could you help clear that up does it have to be as complicated as it appears Okay, well, I'll, I'll start. I have a running joke at the school. Mm. I make, with as far as watercolor and acrylic paint are concerned, I say that if you can wash the, the medium away with water, then it is designed for children. Right. right? <laughs> we use that stuff for kids, right? We don't want kids using something that's very hard to clean. Now, I say that jokingly because I have a lot of respect for, for um, artists who work well with watercolor. Uh, watercolor is, an, is a terribly unforgiving material and people who are able to manage that material beautifully have a have a serious skill set um, i have enormous amount of respect <clears throat> but that's actually part of the point watercolor 
people will use watercolor because it's again they feel safe because it washes up it cleans with water how how bad could it be but the truth is on a scale of one to ten it's a 10 as far as how hard it is to work with. It is terribly unforgiving. You could work for, for 20 hours on a painting and everything's perfect and put down one mark and destroy your painting. One blob of water, boom, water moves, runs across the page, you're done. Painting's garbage, right? Oil paint, as complex as people think it is, is actually the most forgiving material it, there is if you know how to use it. It's almost, imp you'll never run into a thing where you make a mark and a painting's ruined. There's no such thing in oil paint. Now, if you don't have a foundation about how paint is used, everything you do will turn into mud. That, and that's a typical thing. Everything winds up smirky grays and browns. But if you know what you're doing, that will never happen. Never, ever. And so oil paint is the, the most versatile medium there is. There's nothing more versatile. And so we use oil for that reason. You can create the impression of watercolor with oil. And you can go, you can, you can replicate pretty much any medium you want with oil, but you can't do it the other way around. And oil allows you to work, I'm sorry, oil will allow you to work thick, thin, or anywhere in between, which gives you a broad range of effects. And it also allows you to work on any type of substrate, anything from paper all the way up to the coarsest canvas or burlap. Right. So you, it, it just gives you so much flexibility to be creative once you understand what you're doing. So what about the mediums? And I think that is one of those um, particular things that people get confused about. I think that they're not as complicated. They're as complicated as you want them to be. But you don't. I mean, these days you can get ready made mediums anyway, can't you? Or you can you can make your own. But once you found it, you know, it is quite easy, isn't it? But it, do you what what mediums do you send out then with your kit? Is it just like linseed oil or? So, yeah. So basically, basically the idea of mediums and yeah, mediums can be can be daunting because a lot of a lot of a lot of artists, the less knowledgeable ones think that mediums make your paintings and it's just not the case they're worried about the, you know marriage medium which which um rubens used and it doesn't yellow and it doesn't crack and it's like well you know so what um in the end the best thing to do is to work with the paint as closely as you can the way that it comes out of the tube so if you don't need to put any medium in it at all that's the best way to use the paint now if you want to thin the paint down the next best thing to do is to just add more of whatever the binder is, whatever oil is in the paint. So if the paint has linseed oil, just put more linseed oil in it. And across the board, you'll see like safflower oil or, or linseed oil. If you use linseed oil across the board on your paint, you'll never go wrong. And again, the, again, the higher the quality of, uh, of linseed oil, the better the painting will be long term. When you're first learning, you don't really need the best oil. But as you get as you get further down the road and you're charging for your work, you want to make sure that you're using a cold pressed linseed oil. It is more expensive, but it's it's worth the money, especially if you're making paintings that are going to go to, to into other people's homes. Like for me, I paint portraits. Those are heirlooms. I can't put anything in those paintings that isn't going to last for hundreds of years, that isn't time tested, at least to the degree that it can be. Um, so and mediums, for the most part, they do one of two things. They, they all thin the paint down a little bit, but they either make the paint dry faster or they make the paint dry slower. That's all they do. And so for me, what I do is I put I use linseed oil. When this is what Evolve students get, they get linseed oil, which will thin the paint and it'll make the paint. The paint will start to stiffen up. Um, but I find that the linseed oil, even though it's supposed to make the paint stay wet longer. I don't find that it does. I find it actually does quite the opposite. It makes the paint start to get sticky earlier. Um, and then, and then we have an alkyd, which, well, let me kind of, let me go back. The linseed oil, it makes the paint gets kind of stiff quicker, but it takes a long time to dry once you're done painting. Okay. We also have an alkyd, which Old Holland makes. And um, that makes the paint dry fast, right? And so it, if you put the alkyd in by itself, the paint will seize up, lock up while you're working, and then dry overnight. You get maybe two hours or so out of the paint before it starts to become unmanageable. 
the linseed oil will allow the paint to stay open a bit longer. So what we do is we mix them. Um, we start off at the beginning, we just use linseed oil. And then when we get into later techniques, we'll actually combine the two. So the linseed oil will let the paint stay pliable longer. But the, but the alkyd that's added into it will dry it bone dry overnight. So the next day when you come back to your painting, it's dry. So we're taking advantage of a, kind of like a longer setup time from the linseed oil and then a faster finished drying time once the painting is left to sit. And so we kind of play those two things together. Um, the linseed oil, like I said, it doesn't dry the paint fast, but the paint starts to stiffen up. It stays, it's still workable, but it starts to stiffen up because the oil paint has two stages of drying. And so I don't want to get into the, te- the science of it, but it, it has two stages of drying. And the alkyd polishes off the, fin- the drying, you know, completely mm. before, so you can work on it the next day. But the bottom line is it is nowhere. I mean, I, I remember thinking it was so complicated but once you get the hang of it it's actually like you say it's it's easier than anything else it's all you need to all you need to know is that is that the the medium that you're using either makes the paint dry faster or slower and it's going to make the paint thinner it's going to make it more more liquidy uh, the based on the amount you put in and if you use nothing but linseed oil you'll never go wrong you talk in the program about value and edge as being the foundations for all art. Can you explain how that works and why it's important? Yeah. Um, so, you know, most of us, we when we learn about making art, like you know, we, you know, we're put in a we're put in a place where, like, say, we'll go to college. The first real art class we have, I mean, a real art class, where we're no longer dabbling. We're now being expected to be able to produce art. You know, where we have a figure put in front of us because that's usually what people do. They do figure drawing or figure painting. And the teacher will say, like, draw or paint what you see. But the bottom line is, like, you don't know what you see. You see a person. But you're not painting the person. What you're going to do on your canvas is create an illusion that appears to be the person, right? Because the canvas is two-dimensional. It's flat. But what you're seeing with your eyes is three-dimensional. So if you, you, you can't, you can't replicate what you see and still have three dimensions. It doesn't work like that. So you have to have a system for breaking down what you're looking at. In the world, if you, if you strip away color just to start, if you strip away color and you look at an image, it's a black and white image. And if you think about um, kind of zooming in close enough that you can see one shade on, on a person, let's say we're talking about an object, let's say a face, and we look at the forehead. There's, a, there's an area on the forehead that's in the light. And there's an area on the forehead that's in the shadows. And between those two shades, there's an edge that connects them. It's either sharp or it's a gradient, right? So the light is one value, the shadow is another value, and then the edge that connects them is either sharp or a gradient. In grayscale, there's nothing else. You can paint an entire figure. You can paint a ball sitting on a table or the Sistine Chapel in grayscale using nothing but those two pieces of information. Shades of gray how light or dark something is, and then how light or dark something is that's next to it, and then the edge that connects the two shades. And the entire world is made up of nothing but those two things, if you think of it in grayscale. When we add color to that equation, we're now looking at color value choice against another color value choice and the edge that connects them. But there's nothing else in the world. Now, we need to have the skill to perceive it. And that's developed, one, it's developed by having a process for filtering the visual data that comes in, right? Because if you just look at stuff, it's stuff. You look at a person, they're a person. How do you break them down and make sense of them with the the colored mud that you have sitting on your palette? You have to have a mental filter. And so what we do is we break everything down based on three components, color and value, which are handled on the palette. We mix a color value. And a color value is just a particular color of a particular value. So let's say red, and it's a dark red or a light red, right? So that's a color value. And we pick up, we make a color value to match what we see in the light on something. And then we mix a color value to match the shadow. We put them both down on the canvas, and then we have to figure out what kind of edge connects them. Is it razor sharp? Is it mostly sharp? Is it a gradient? Is it a really soft gradient? And if you look around, anything around you, you'll notice that everything, if you, look, if you find one shade and color in something and then you see a variation of it next to it or, or a complete difference in it, and you'll notice that it's connected by a type of edge, right? There's no gap. 
So those two, those two color values, when they touch, are connected by one of two types of edges. And you can actually filter every single thing that you see in the world that way. And once you start seeing the world that way, painting becomes relatively easy. What it does is, uh, right, so if you think about it, if I put a ball, a red ball on a table, that ball, if you tried to paint it, is made up of color value decisions and edge decisions, right? There's nothing else. If I put a person in front of you, the person is made up of nothing but color value decisions and edge decisions. So the ball and the person, you are using the same tools as an artist to, to create a painting, even though one seems very simple and one seems very complex. We don't change how we filter the information for a complex subject. And what that does is that neutralizes the subject's complexity because we have a tool, uh, you know, a, a, a skill set that we apply equally to any subject. It's, it's, you know, this is a visual thing. Um, it, it can be a little bit hard to explain just verbally. We have a webinar where I go into, I show how value and edge build an illusion that is unshakable, that I can show you the, you know, if you watch a magician do something, you can't see how it was done. It looks like magic. But if, you, if they show you how it's done, then you'll know how it's done. You'll be able to, you won't see the illusion anymore. You'll see how it's done, right? If you want to sign up for the free masterclass webinar, just go to kickingthecreatives.com forward slash evolve webinar. The way our brain works, I actually, in the webinar that we have, I show the illusion of how to create depth. And then I invert the image and I still have the impression of depth. And I explain how your brain is processing the information to get there. And even though you've seen the illusion being built, your brain won't let you see anything but the illusion. It tells you the illusion is real. And that's how we bring the painting to life. And again, it's a lot more than I can, than I can describe here. But yes, learning to make any type of art, any, whether it's realism, hyperrealism, abstract, it doesn't make a difference, whether it's traditional art or, or, or digital. The same three moving parts exist, and that's all there is. You've got value, color, and edge. And again, we talk about perception because perception is your ability to see them and to integrate them, to have a language, a filter to take the visual information in and make sense of it, and then a filter to then put it back out into the world on canvas or digitally or however it is that you work. But those three moving parts, once you master them, it's like imagine if you could cook any meal that you want with just three ingredients. You just had to know how much of each of the three ingredients you needed to add and when you needed to add them. Imagine if that's, you could cook literally anything, Indian food, you know, um, Spanish food, like anything. Sounds like my, my kind of cooking, to be honest. <laughs> but, but imagine if you could do that, that you yeah. could go make anything from a boiled egg all the way up to the most extravagant meal, all with three ingredients. Mm. Well, that's what this is. We have value, color, and edge. Those three ingredients will take you everywhere from painting a single gray cube on a, on a gray table all the way up to the Sistine Chapel without any other knowledge. So once your students have grasped all this and they've got a quite a high level of skill of realism, what can they do with these skills and are your students selling their work? Well, they can do anything, <laughs> I tell you. Like, so within the school, I have lots of high school kids that sell their artwork. That while their friends are out working other jobs, these kids are making paintings and making money at it and making good money at it. A lot of these kids, they're doing 20 bucks an hour, $20 an hour while they're 15 years old, 16 years old. And so basically they're being paid $20 an hour to further develop their skills. In the online program, I can tell you that we actually have a couple of students that have recently come in that have been real serious about selling the work they're doing. Okay. And we have conversations about this all the time. I'm, I'm a big proponent of understanding how to sell your work, right? If you make artwork and you want to sell it and you don't know how, well, what do you do? And so we talk about how you build a career, how you sell your work. We have these conversations and Evolve all the time. That's something that is actually missing from every other art school I've ever known. I mean, nobody talks about that stuff, do they? No, and it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate because, you know, a lot, you understand, a lot of these art schools, they don't talk about selling art because they know that they're not giving you a, a skill set that is sellable. And so if they give you the skill set that doesn't work, and then they put you out into the world and tell you they've told you how to sell, and you can't sell, and you can't produce the work, you know you got robbed. But if they don't teach you how to sell, 
and they just give you the skill set. And then they can tell you that, well, you're just not doing a good job selling what you do. It's now on you. It's a way of them passing the buck. And, and look, let's be honest. How many artists have you met who understand business? Probably none, right? Because they've been, they've been brainwashed into thinking that their job is to make art. But I can tell you, I've been selling my art. Since, I've been selling my art by myself since I was, since I was 22 years old. I don't, I don't use agents. I don't use portrait brokers. I don't use anything. I do it myself. And because I understand how it works. I understand how to find clients. I understand, I'm first of all, before anything else, I'm delivering a high-end product. I have the deliverables. And until you have a product to sell, there's no point in even putting it out there because it's going to degrade your confidence. You go out and you sell stuff that's mediocre and nobody wants to buy it, then even when you get to the point where you're doing good work, you don't have the confidence to put it out into the world and, and sell it. So we want to get our skills to where we're producing something of, of exceptional quality. Look, people, people want to own things that they're impressed with, and they want to own them in part for themselves, but also to show them off. And so if you're producing work that doesn't make somebody want to own it, then it doesn't matter how hard you sell, you're not going to sell anything. You know, and, and so you start with the skill set. Now, going back to, like I was saying, we have a couple of students in the Evolve program that recently came in. We have one, we have one woman. She paid for the program with the paintings she did in block one. She actually sold our, I mean, these are paintings. Every single person in the program does the same paintings. They're, they're worked from photographs. Now, we do work from life afterwards, but the first block is all photographs. And some of the paintings get, they're just grayscale. But they're, they're elegant if they're done well. And so she sold them the last four or five paintings in the first block and made enough money to pay for the program. Wow, oh, that's amazing. She, and she's not we, we actually have two of them that have done that. Wow. And, and, you know, we're not talking about people in wealthy neighborhoods. We're talking about just average people who have, yeah. who have basically what, she, what one of them said to me was she really needed to. She needed to make the sales. So that she could do not just, you know, basically so she'd make money to, to cover the cost of the program. And she came into the program expecting that that's what she was going to do. Now, she is delivering top tier work. She's doing everything beautifully. She's patient. She's focused. But she's selling everything she's doing at this point. And their right. homework assignments inside of the program, they're not even, it's not her own work. It's homework assignments. <laughs> But it shows you what's possible. Yeah. And she's not she's not a slick salesperson. She's just a she's just a person making a good product and people see it and want it. And getting the right guidance. That's that's yeah. the that's the bottom line. It's not that hard. I, I actually had a conversation, I won't go into the particulars of it. I had a conversation with about half a dozen of the students in Evolve. And I showed them how using our block five technique, which is called vacant shadows. How you can make eighty thousand U.S. dollars a year working just weekends. Now, when I first said that, they were like, "It's impossible," and I said, "I can actually show you how to make one hundred and fifty thousand dollars doing that just weekends." But let's just go with eighty, eighty thousand to drive the point. By the time I was done doing the math with them, they were all sitting there with their mouths open. They couldn't believe how simple it was. It's not that hard, but you have to have the skills. And if you have the skills, you'll be confident when you sell. But it's really not that hard. Doing it, when I, when I was finished explaining how it's done, and this is just one approach, but when I was finished, every single one of the people who couldn't believe it was possible was like, yeah, 80,000 would be easy. 150 actually does make sense. Yeah, it might take a year to get there. But I think if you made 80000 the first year and doubled up to 150 or so the second year, working only weekends, I think you'd be okay with that delay, holding off. Absolutely. Considering the rest of the will get a 3% raise you know, every year. I mean, it's an investment in, in both time and money, but it's sure. a, very good, um, a very good outcome. I, I just want to know why, then, do you think that so few art schools are teaching those classical techniques these days? And what impact do you think it's having on today's artists? Well, I mean, it's simple. 
It's simple. Um, and we see it in a lot of things, but art is, art is it's, a, it's easy to illustrate in art. First of all, I, I, have, I, have a, uh, I have a knee-jerk reaction to the way that art is taught in schools these days. It's, it's a disgrace. Um, they're not teaching anything. And, it, and, and it's not to say that there aren't some good teachers out there and there aren't some places where information is being disseminated, but it's, I mean, you're more likely to be hit by lightning than to find an education in a college. And that's, and, and you're talking about, I mean, the top colleges, you're talking a quarter of a million dollars to, and, and even worse than the quarter of a million dollars is they steal four years of your life, four vital years where you could be making, making huge leaps forward. Look, I, I, we, in the Evolve program, I'll get back to the, the colleges in a second, but in the Evolve program, if you commit on average seven hours a week, you'll finish the first four blocks and be producing professional level work in one year. That's the amount of time that you would spend in a painting class in an average college. Now, in an average college, they'd also send you home with six hours of homework, right? An average class is six hours and they expect six hours of homework. If you're clocking, say 14 hours, which is what Revolve would want, you would be producing professional level work at six months. Our, and the Evolve education is less than a penny on the dollar of what those schools cost. And we give you all of the materials free. I mean, it's, it's like, again, like I said earlier, it's not, for me, it's not about the money. It's about sharing this. Now, obviously the company has to be successful. It has to be financially viable to be able to do what it's doing. Um, but we're not here to, to gouge people. We're here to, to make these things accessible. And so going back to the colleges, I'm gonna to explain to you very quickly why it is colleges fail. And it's not the college's fault. Colleges are businesses. Make no mistake about that. They're a business just like McDonald's. They have to fill seats. And the better their ranking, the easier it is to bring students in then the, the better their ranking, the easier it is to bring, bring in the better students through portfolio review. And then what they do is they've got to get the best teachers. So they pay, right? They've got to be in New York City or in San Francisco to have that higher status. There's all these things connected to the school to make it, to, to build a perception, a marketable perception. But what happens when a school like, like Pratt, which has been around forever, it's in, it's in Brooklyn and New York, and it's always in the top 10 schools in the world for art. What happens in a year when a handful of their better teachers aren't available to teach? Because it's not, it's not a full-time job. They teach two classes. What happens when a few of their teachers aren't around? What do they do? What if their best painting teacher gets sick, can't teach? Where do they get a teacher to replace that person? Well, they'll find anybody who can, who can fit the job. So are they getting a pro? Well, they claim that they that their entire staff is you have to be a professional to teach there, but there's there are different levels of pro. So if you make a living at painting, you're a pro. But what if you've had a couple of professional jobs, but actually make most of your money waiting tables? Are you a professional artist? Well, you can kind of make the argument that you do get professional. You do make some money at it. You must be a pro. And so. They kind of bend the language a little bit, but they have to take what they can get. And what if a school can't get any decent teachers? They're still getting pros, but that doesn't mean they're any good. That they could be barely making, barely making any money in the real art world, but they are technically professional because they make some money at it. And then of those, how many of them have any idea how to explain what they do? Right? I mean, there's, there's this whole mess of stuff. Look, as a professional painter, I make. Ooh, I make um, 30, about 40 times the hourly wage of a college professor when I paint. Why the hell would I ever teach in a school? To make 140th of my hourly wage? Why would I, why would I ever consider that? That there's no way, there's nothing a school could do to convince me to teach. If Now, if I chose to, that's different. And you do get some people who do that. But... Why would I ever sacrifice the freedom that getting up and painting every day allows me when I could make that much money painting and then or trade that off and get stuck every Thursday night having to haul myself into the city to a class where half the kids don't even care? 
Like, why would I do that to myself? And so it becomes very hard for these schools to bring in professionals to teach. And make no mistake, if you're not a working professional, you don't have any reason. There's no justification for you to be teaching at a college level. I'd make that argument. I stand by that. If you don't have the skills yourself to make a living at art, how in the world are you going to teach somebody else the things they need in order to be a working professional? It's impossible. How can you teach something you don't know? Right? You think about it. Right? You, you, you cook scrambled eggs in the morning and you do a bad job at it. You then go to culinary school and teach people how to make Bordelais sauce? Well, that's not going to happen. You'd have no idea what you were doing. So, but that's what they do in art schools. So you get all these semi-pros, people who aren't making a living. And these are the best schools. I'm going to get to the one to the regular art schools out in Ohio in a minute. These are the top schools in the world that bringing in the, the, the true professionals that they can. And then the vast majority of their staff are semi-pros, which means they're not making a full living. Most of them are supplementing their income so they can survive with the money they make when they teach in college. Those people don't have a skill set that can feed themselves. So what are they teaching? And when they teach, they can't even teach you everything they know because there's not enough time. So they have half, let's say half of what they need to know to be a pro themselves. And they're only disseminating a tenth of that to you. They're useless. I think this is where the internet is just so, um, well, it's just opened so many different doors now for people. People have choice now, don't they? And they, they can, they have access yeah. to things like Evolve, well, which is yes. pretty much one on its own, really, but um, that we would never have had years ago. So I, I would highly recommend anyone listening to go to the Evolve website for sure, because it's... Um, it's very it's well. kickinthecreatives.com forward slash evolve. Yeah, that's it. Kickinthecreatives.com forward slash evolve. That's where you can, um, hopefully, I think if you go on to that link, there should be a discount. Uh, might be time sensitive though, so don't waste any time <laughs> going to have a look. But you, um, I think there, there's a link underneath to, you know, everything there is to know. Well, not everything, but all of the um, links to where they can then go to find out more. And I think you've got some videos on there, haven't you, as well? Some almost yeah. like little, almost little freebie tutorials, haven't you? Yeah, there are a couple of, there are very, there are, there are a lot, we have a lot of things out there. Yeah. Um, but if they want, if, if, uh, if your listeners want any more information, they can always reach out to Evolve. There are real people here. Yeah. And our mission is the success of our students. Wow. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. It's been lovely to hear all about it. And I think people are going to be really excited about it as well. Well, it's yeah. my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate the time. Oh, no, we appreciate you coming on. Thank you. And have a great rest of your day. Okay. You do the same. <laughs> Take care. Bye. Bye. Kicking the Creatives are an affiliate of Evolve, so if you do decide to sign up for the program using our link, we'll receive a commission and this will help us to continue doing what we do. Thank you so much for your support, we really do appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening, we hope you enjoyed the episode and if you did, perhaps you'd like to share it and leave a review for us on iTunes.